So as I said, after a couple weeks off, uh, we pick up where we left off in John 13. We took some time to celebrate, if you weren't with us, the uh, 500th anniversary of the Reformation two weeks ago, and then last week uh, was Stewardship Sunday, where we discussed how we ourselves steward this chapter of the movement by our own sacrifice. Um, uh, the Reformation came at the cost of so many people, and we now, in our chapter, sacrifice in costly ways uh, to continue the movement. If you were not able to be with us, if you are a member and regular attender of TCPC, and you were not able to be with us last week, would love for you to go back and listen to that sermon and listen to that combined Sunday school class. Uh, very important. Uh, both of them are online. Very important for where we're going this year. By way of transitioning back to John 13, I still want to talk a little bit more about the Reformation, but from a different angle. I want to tell you some things about the Reformers that probably didn't show up in too many Reformation Sunday sermons or many 500th anniversary of the Reformation conferences that took place all over our country. Let's talk about Martin Luther. Luther was the pioneer of the Reformation, as you have heard me talk about the past couple of weeks, the one who nailed the theses to the door, the one who rediscovered the gospel of justification by faith alone that we talked about in the Reformation Sunday, the one who so courageously would not recant the famous line, here I stand, I can do no other. And also the one who was a raging anti-Semitic in the latter years of his life and, who's later, and who later in life writings would inspire Adolf Hitler just as much as his writings on Galatians inspire us. In 1517, Luther nailed his theses to the door. In 1543, three years before his death, Luther published his work on the Jews and their lies. In it, Luther calls the Jews, quote, a base, whoring people, full of devil's feces, which they wallow in like swine. He advocates for their homes and synagogues and schools and books to be burned, that they should be segregated with no legal protections, or even, it would seem, put to death. Quote from Luther's work, we are at fault in not slaying them. Well, that's Martin Luther. Everybody knows he went crazy. And senile. Every historian will tell you in his old age he went crazy. Okay, let's talk about his successor, John Calvin. Luther was the pioneer of the Reformation, um, but Calvin was the theologian of the Reformation. He is our true father of theology. We disagree with Luther on some things theologically, but John Calvin on almost nothing in our tradition. The greatest theological mind church history has probably ever produced. But woe to the person who would dare disagree with John Calvin. You see, Calvin also had a reputation of intellectual arrogance and anger towards anybody who would dare disagree with him. Some critics went so far as calling him tyrannical. The most famous example would be a Spanish theologian named Michael Servatus. Servatus held to some heretical views, no doubt, such as the fact that Jesus was not the Son of God. And he was condemned as a heretic in Geneva, while Calvin was there, 
and sentenced to burn to death at the stake, which he eventually was. To be fair, Calvin did show some compassion by being the only one advocating for a lesser sentence, a beheading rather than a burning. So nice of you, John Calvin. Say, well, those guys are helpless victims of their time, 16th century barbaric practices. Let's move on to American history. Let's talk about the greatest Reformed theologian America has ever produced, probably the greatest mind America has ever produced. Let's talk about Jonathan Edwards, the leader of America's revival known as the Great Awakening, the man whose writings set John Piper on fire, which then led to the Reformed resurgence that we are in the middle of right now. It's very easy to say that the Reformed resurgence is taking place now is as a result of Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century, the great Jonathan Edwards who also happened to be a racist slave owner, and historical documents seem to imply a pretty harsh and brutal slave owner at that. Listen, I can do this all day. You will not find a hero of the faith without deep inconsistencies and failures. That's why I had us read 2 Samuel 11 for our Old Testament reading as we watch the greatest hero, the greatest hero in Israel's history, Give in to lust, rape a woman, and try to cover the whole thing up by pl plotting the murder of her husband. But what you need to know is that Jesus is not threatened by any of this, nor does he try to hide and explain away any of this. In fact, he's actually quite brazen with this truth. Look at verse, verse 18. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. I know who you are. But the scriptures will be fulfilled. And then he quotes the Davidic Psalm, where, which is just a, a line that speaks of treachery. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. That's an interesting verse, particularly for where it fits in chapter 13. Does it belong as the conclusion of the foot washing act and teaching that precedes it, or is it introducing the section on Judas that we will look at next week? The answer is actually both, honestly, but if you have to choose one, it should be viewed as the conclusion of foot washing more so than the introduction of Judas. And you see that in the way the ESV divides its subheadings. I don't know what version you're using, but in the ESV, I think rightly, the new section begins with 21, and when you read verse 21, you can see that it is clearly a new movement into a new discourse. Granted, verse 18 um, is certainly an allusion to Judas, no doubt, uh, but more than anyone else, Judas, and it clearly sparks the Judas discourse. But Jesus intends for it to serve as the concluding word of the foot-washing ceremony and teaching. So here's the flow of the section to get us back to where we were. Jesus washed his feet... He instructs his followers that they should also wash each other's feet. Not just literally wash their feet, but metaphorically, the foot-washing, servant, humble disposition, that that should be the culture of the community. He promises that in washing feet, they will be blessed. In serving, you yourself will be blessed. That's where we left off, John 13. And then immediately verse 18, which essentially says, but not all of you will be blessed by washing feet. Instead, you will do the opposite. You will betray. You will betray me. You will betray one another. 
Again, that alludes to Judas, no doubt, but more so he is saying that what I have just commanded you to do, you're going to be really bad at doing it. Foot washing is certainly the aim of Christian community, but it will not be the reality of Christian community, and Jesus is not surprised by this. In fact, he's predicting it. He's promising it. And that's what we will explore together this morning. The failures of Judas specifically and the disciples in general immediately create two problems that the next two verses will speak to. Problem one is this, and you'll hear these whenever you hear the world talk about failures of Christians, you'll hear these as a problem. Problem one is this, doesn't this disprove the truth of Jesus? Problem two, doesn't this disable the work of Jesus? I think when we consider the many failures of Christians, these tend to be the two things we believe are threatened. The truth of Jesus and the work of Jesus. And Jesus himself speaks to both of these. In verse 9, or excuse me, in verse 19, we see that Jesus is still true. In verse 20, we see that Jesus is still on the move. So he's still true, he's still on the move. Jesus is still true despite our failures. Verse 19, in the upper room before his death, Jesus predicts Jesus' betrayal. Peter's denial, indeed, that all the disciples will scatter and betray him, abandon him. Now, why is he so focused on predicting their failures? Why is this such a big deal to Jesus in his last words? He tells us in verse 19, I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. That is much more then I'm going to make a prediction that will come true so that when it does come true, you will remember that I predicted it and you'll be amazed by by my prophetic powers. He could have made any old prediction if he was just trying to prove the point that he is omniscient and he can predict the future and that proves him or something like that. But he chooses instead to predict their failures. This is the focus of Jesus in his prediction is the failures of his disciples. There's more going on here. Notice the wording. So that when it does take place, when you do betray me, when you do abandon me, when you do fail me, when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. What does he mean, I am he? That some, there's this connection between when you fail, you will believe that I am he. What's I am he? Meaning, I am who I said I was. I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior. This is an identity claim. Jesus believes that the, follow, that the failures of his followers are not a threat to his identity. In fact, they are actually proof of his identity. Or, better yet, the very purpose of his identity. Your failures will help you believe and help others believe that I am He. So what's the connection here? What is the connection between the disciples' failures and our failures and belief in the identity of Jesus? It is because within our failures, we see most clearly the reason for Jesus. The purpose of Jesus is made known from the vantage point of failure, not success. Because it is in our failures that we need a Savior and we see Jesus as the Savior that we need. 
Or to quote Jesus, it is within our failures. It is there that we believe Jesus is who he says, that I am he. Jesus has come not to demand faithfulness, but to forgive failures. And so our failures viewed through that purpose are not in any way a threat to Jesus. They are actually the reason for Jesus. But this is only true of Jesus and his paradoxical religion that we call the gospel. If Jesus is establishing a religion in the conventional sense of the word, then yes, the failures of his followers are a threat to his claims. Because religions in a conventional sense are systems of self-improvement. They are ways to better ourselves and to earn a reward for doing just that. And in this way, the system must be judged on its effectiveness to do just that. The success of a religion is based on the faithfulness of the adherence to that religion. Because the very point of religion is to better people. Well, what is being pointed out more and more more within the pluralistic society that we now inhabit? What is being pointed out more and more these days is that you don't have to be religious to be moral, to be better. Your friendly neighborhood atheist can be just as good of a neighbor as the religious fundamentalist down the street. In fact, people are noticing that religions can often cause more harm than good because they instinctively create institutional structures of division and self-righteous people. But what if you have a religion that is not a system of betterment, but a way of salvation? That is, the central tenet is not to teach you how to succeed as your own savior, but to diagnose you as a failure in need of an outside savior. In that construct, our failures aren't a threat, they're the point Our failures are not a threat to our religion. They're the very reason for our religion. And that is precisely what Jesus has come to establish. A religion where failures prove his point by proving our need for his claim. I am he. Gandhi famously said, I like your Christ. I just don't like your Christians. Well, me too, Gandhi. I agree. Never will I commend the followers of Jesus to anyone, but I will commend with my dying breath the Savior of these failing, faltering followers. Because that's our religion. So that is what you say to the very common objection. The failures of Christians disprove their Christ. To the contrary, Jesus is saying, our failures make known our Christ and His power to save. That's our religion. Our failures don't disprove Jesus. They prove the point of Jesus. And they prove the power of Jesus. So verse 19, I'm telling you now that you're going to fail so that when you do fail, you will understand your failures rightly, not as a reason to disbelieve, but as the reason to believe that I am He, the one whom every failure needs. So Jesus is still true. Next verse. Jesus is still on the move. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
Whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. This seems to be a very strange uh, way to conclude the section on foot washing. He washes the feet of his community. He tells his community to do likewise, wash each other's feet. He predicts that they will fail to live that out well, but that's okay because it only proves that I am he. It seems like it should be over now. But then we have verse 20 that seems to not fit at all with the section. The more problematic are those two words at the beginning of the verse, truly, truly, or literally, amen, 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 amen. That phrase is always used by Jesus um, as an emphasis, and usually it indicates that he's summing up his thinking. So this verse doesn't, it, it, it doesn't seem to fit, but Jesus intends it to be the emphasis and summation of the entire section. And there's an important reason why there. Without this verse, it might seem that the purpose of the foot washing ceremony and teaching is merely an internal cultivation of some utopian community that washes each other's feet. It is certainly obvious and true that Jesus is trying to form a community here, but that is not the end goal. And verse 20 won't let it be the end goal. The end goal is a community that, yes, does this, lives this out, but who then at the same time is a sent community. Whoever receives the one that I send. So I'm teaching you how to be this people and now I'm going to send you. So the idea is for us to be a people who are sent to live out this foot washing principle before the world as witnesses of a new world established by a savior who washes feet. Jesus washes our feet. We embody the foot washing principle within a world of selfishness and division and violence and hatred. We go forth bearing witness to a new world. They will know we are Christians and they will know our Christ by our love for one another. That's where this is going to be going to be going in the weeks to come. A foot washing community is decisively missional and intends to turn the world upside down by living this out. But this only begs the question that we've been dealing with this morning. What if we're terrible at living it out? It may not be a threat to the identity of Jesus like we saw in verse 19, but surely it would be a threat to the work of Jesus. Our failures may not threaten who he is, but surely our failures will threaten what he does through us. Verse 20 begs to differ. Follow the chain of authority, okay? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Do you know what he is saying to the world? Whoever receives, that's what he's talking about the world. Here's what he's saying. When my failing followers show up somewhere, I show up with them. And when I show up with them, the one who sent me shows up too. So make the connection. The presence and power of the almighty triune God dwells with this community of misfits. Now, here's why that is important. The power of Christian community witness is not based upon the integrity of the witness, but upon the faithfulness and power of the one we are witnessing to. We are not commending ourselves. We are commending our Savior. 
a faithful Savior that is promising here to dwell with his community of faithless followers, not just as their Savior, but as their power. And if this is true, if this is true, then oh, how powerful is the community of God's people. Failures though we may be, he sends us, but he is, but he is not just with us. Or if he were to send us and he wasn't with us, then we would ruin the world, I think. But if he sends us and is with us, then we will redeem the world. And such has been the case over and over again. The history of the church is the same as the history of the Bible. God drawing straight lines with crooked sticks. Faithless people, faithful God. He can take an anti-Semite and lead a reformation. He can take an arrogant intellectual who condemns to death those who disagree with him and give us arguably the greatest theology of history. He could take a racist slave owner and ignite an American awakening. And he can take you, O faithless people of Jesus, and do what you cannot do. Question. Last time we were in John 13, I asked if you thought you were better than Jesus. He washes the disciples' feet, then he says, you've got to wash feet too. And I said, if you're unwilling to do that, then you're acting like you're better than Jesus. Do you think you're better than Jesus? This week, I want to ask you this. Do you think you're stronger than Jesus? Which do you think is stronger? Your failures or his faithfulness? Because both of those remain true. You will always fail him, and he is always faithful. Which is stronger? Our self-doubt and condemnation are evidence that we think we are stronger than Jesus that we think our failures are stronger than his faithfulness. Our spiritual fears and uncertainties of where we stand with God are evidence that we think we are stronger than Jesus. The fact that we think we have screwed up our kids and our marriage beyond redemption is evidence that we think we are stronger than Jesus. The fact that we fear to evangelize our coworkers and neighbors and family and friends because our life is so inconsistent and I've already probably ruined my witness anyway, and I don't have the right answer to their questions, and I'll probably end up just creating a bigger mess of things, is evidence that we think we are stronger than Jesus. The fact that we think we have irreparably ruined our life and the lives of those around us is evidence that we think we are stronger than Jesus. That we think our failures are stronger than his faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, you think too highly of yourself. You are not stronger than Jesus. And if anyone knows that from personal experience, it's me. It's easy, very easy to talk for a preacher to talk about Martin Luther and John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards centuries removed from them. What about me? Friends, my life and leadership, nobody knows this more than this man next to me. My life and leadership of this church is nothing more but one big testimony that the faithfulness of Jesus is stronger than the faithlessness of man. I was tempted here to 
in broad general senses talk about my, my unfaithfulness, maybe from years past and so forth. I said, you know, let's talk about my week. You know what I did on Saturday? I lied to my wife. Um, it, wasn't a, it, it wasn't a big lie. It wasn't like, if I told you what it was, you, everybody would get the biggest kick out of it. It was just, it was just it, it was silly. It was stupid. It was offhanded. You know, sometimes you just say something and you just say, wait, why did I just say that? And normally, you know, normal people would just be like, wait, why did I say that? That wasn't true. But you know what I did? I doubled down. <laughs> and she knew, you know, you know, wives, good gracious, spouses know us, you know. She knew, like, that, that doesn't sound right. But I doubled down. And then we got into the competition. Do you do this, spouses? Well, now I can't give in because I can't lose this. And so I doubled down even more. And then when his parents were like, okay, this is really bad. I, I, just need to, I just need to just come out, come clean. Okay, you're right. But then I started justifying, well, hold on now. If I admit this, like, it is, it is so embarrassing because I've really been doubling down on this and this is really shameful. And it's so embarrassing to say, you know what, you're right. I wasn't telling the truth. And then I started thinking, and if I tell her the truth, then she's not going to trust me. And she's going to think like I'm always lying to her. And I'm just like spiraling down into this thing. And it's just getting worse and worse and worse. And I'm digging hole, hole, hole. And, and this is our Saturday. This is our Friday. This was Friday. Okay, this is our Friday, two days ago. And, and this carried on. And, and, and by golly, I wasn't relenting until Saturday morning. I finally said... I was lying and I don't know why. I'm sorry. Okay, that was yesterday. Let me ask you this. I have to wake up this morning. I talked to the kids last night. We were told, you know, we use this as an occasion for our discipleship kids. I told them what I did and all this stuff. And, and I asked them, you know, now I got to go preach tomorrow after that. I, gotta, I have to preach to a lot of people tomorrow. And I asked them, I told them about the passage, and I asked them, does that mean that what I preach isn't true? No. Does that mean that what I preach isn't going to be used? Well, no, Daddy. I wake up this morning, and I'm here preaching to Jesus. Have my failures this week negated what I have said the past 25 minutes? Does lying to my wife disprove that the Jesus that I have proclaimed to you this morning... Of course not. Jesus is still true. If anything, my failures prove him more because he is a savior powerful enough for a failure like me. Does lying to my wife disarm for you the power of Jesus that I proclaim to you this morning? No. Jesus is still on the move. If anything, my failures prove his power even more because he's able to use a failure like me to accomplish his great purposes. And friends, I'm not alone. The reason I can speak so freely of my failures is because um, I, I actually do believe in the doctrine of sin and depravity, and I think I'm speaking to a room full of failures who could tell your own stories. All I'm doing is proclaiming to failures the God of faithfulness. Take heart, beloved failures of God. Your failures are not stronger than his faithfulness. Let me thank him for us. Thank you, God, that you are so patient with us community, our community that, that uh, fails you, that fails to live out your foot-washing 
principle that doesn't do this well, but most of all, we praise you that despite this, you are still true and you are still on the move. And every generation, that's been the story. Faithless people, faithful Jesus. May we know your faithfulness this morning, even as we partake. May we know how faithful you are in overcoming our sins and failures. That your power is made perfect in weakness. That your grace is sufficient. That when we are weak, you are strong. That when we deny you, you will not deny us. That when we are faithless, you are faithful. Help us to see that, Lord. And go out from here free and empowered and emboldened by the good news of a God who is still true and is still on the move despite our failures. Pray all this in Jesus' name, the faithful one. Amen.